Good morning, City Chapel. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. If, uh, if you're watching the schedule, the preaching schedule, and, and you've been praying for Noah Welch this week, I'm sure that he and his family have appreciated it. And uh, although, you know, we could be twins, um, I am not Noah Welch. I am Matt Vanderleek. And of course, when I say that we would be twins, Noah would be the Schwarzenegger twin to my DeVito. <laughs> Some of you might not get that, but uh, that's okay. As I said, I'm Matt Vanderleek. I'm one of the elders here at City Chapel, and I'm a candidate for teaching elder. And you've heard me say that if you've been coming here any length of time. And so what does that mean? That means that the elders in the congregation, our members, have the duty to ensure that I am equipped uh, to bear the responsibility to biblically lead our body in prayer and doctrine as the first among equals around the eldership table. And so I invite you as we dive into the word this morning, um, as we should always do, to please weigh what I have to say against what scripture says. Uh, We are again in our sermon series on 1 Peter called Sojourners in Exile. We here at City Chapel tend to go through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this morning, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, please put your hand up and one will be given to you. And if you are in our pew Bibles, you will find this on page 1015. As you find your text in your Bible this morning, I just want to take the opportunity as you're flipping through your pages uh, to define a couple of theological terms. Um, In God's providence, as Rich mentioned in the announcements this morning, we will be exploring God's command to wives and to husbands over the next two weeks. And then the following weekend is the mini-conference at Bethany Baptist on biblical manhood and womanhood with Gavin Peacock. Uh, And I invite any of you who are able to go to please take advantage of that conference and then to again weigh what Gavin says against scripture and see what uh, what is, make sure that it is true. And now some of the terms that maybe you have heard uh, in in theological terms that we use um, is first of all egalitarianism egalitarianism. This is also sometimes referred to as classic Christian feminism, and it's primary focused on defining the equality of men and women. And they do hold to their own view of what they would call complementarianism, and that is that God made all humans male and female, uh, which is true, and that man and woman, for either one, it's not good for them to be alone that both man and woman make up together the full view of humanity, um, that women alone or men alone are not the true essence of what it means to be human. It's not the true essence of what God created uh, humanity to be, but that the two complement each other. So that's how they would define complementarianism within egalitarianism. But they define equality to mean that there is no differentiation whatsoever in roles, uh, and that as scripture shows us a differentiation in roles, it is just because of the patriarchal social system that existed in the present time and that it was acceptable 
for then, um, but it's not necessarily prescribed is what they would say. And if this is your view this morning, I want to let you know you are welcome here at City Chapel, uh, but this is not the view that we hold to. And I would just consider uh, you to wrestle with um, who was it that established that patriarchal system. And as nations in antiquity throughout the Bible times uh, embraced various forms of feminism, was it not God who maintained a standard for his own people and even punished them when they strayed from that? And in holding this view, I I would like you to ask yourself, who is it that is being honored and worshipped? Is it God or is it men or women? And so then complementarianism, to define that, this was a term uh, that was actually coined by John Piper and Wayne Grudem in the 80s in an attempt to capture the essence of biblical manhood and womanhood. And so in the same way, complementarianism, we believe that men and women are equal, that we were created by God, uh, not spoken into being, but personally formed by God, that that humans were handcrafted, that we are the image bearers of holy God, that he created them in his own image, male and female. He created them to have dominion over creation, and yet he gave them distinct roles, that Adam was created first, Adam received from God the instructions for life in the garden, that Adam was, as hip-hop artist Timothy Brindle says a priest judge. He was the temple guardian that he was commissioned by the Lord to guard his holy presence from evil. And Adam was charged to disciple his wife Eve. He was to train her in what God had commanded. And Adam was charged to lead her. And then Eve was instructed to submit to Adam's leadership. And all of this was God's design before sin entered the world, before the fall of man. He gave us these roles of leadership and discipleship and submission to his word. And yet, Adam and Eve both failed. Eve was deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3, and Adam failed to disciple and lead his wife. And then who was it that God held primarily responsible for this? Who was it that God called out to as he walked into the garden to give an account of what happened? It was Adam. Adam failed as a leader, and Eve failed to submit. So since the fall, and as a result of the curse, humanity has embraced the sins of our parents, Adam and Eve. We have a sin nature because of that, and we have fought against the roles and responsibilities that God calls us to. And so for the next two weeks, we will be exploring God's design, what God's design is, Uh, within the marriage relationship is kind of our launch pad to look into that. And so this week we begin with wives, but don't worry, husbands, come back next week and you'll get yours. Now, I just also want to address that there might be a temptation to tune out. If you're here and, and you're not a wife, you're like, oh, this sermon isn't for me, I don't need to listen. But single women, I want to speak to you, if you desire marriage, it is worth learning and growing in the disciplines of God before uh, that God requires before marriage. And so that you come out of the gate strong. And so I invite you to listen for that purpose. That, and for single men and women, if you don't desire marriage, if 
by providence you uh, will remain single. There is still universal applications in God's word for you. Uh, As well, God also charges us that we should disciple others. And so we have the opportunity to grow in our understanding of what God requires together so that you are able and equipped to disciple others even if you have uh, if you don't have firsthand experience in it or not and then also men husbands and those who aspire to be husbands you are charged to lead and disciple your wife and how can you do this unless you know what god has instructed and commanded so actually you should be listening more intently and taking more notes than anyone else here this morning And lastly, of course, we continue to see that what God commands his people reveals something of his own character. And so as Christians, as we explore what it is that God commands, we see revealed to us who our God is. And as we explore our submission and what he calls us to, we grow in our understanding of our triune God. The Bible calls the wife a helper, and she shares that title with the Holy Spirit. And we see that Jesus embodies perfect submission. We see that the church, that that is all of us together universally, is called the bride of Christ. And the instruction from our Heavenly Father is perfect, and we are called to submission of His Word, His will, and His commandments. And we are saved to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit as we humbly submit our wills and our lives to Him. So now, with that being said, let's dive into our word this morning, or the word this morning, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the reading of God's word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. May the Lord add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Let's commit our time this morning together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray you would increase our hunger for your word, As we explore this text this morning, would you make the book live to us? We know that your word is living and active. Would you instruct us in your truth? Would you make us people of the book? Would each person here this morning find ourselves pierced to the heart by your truths? Would you bring about conviction where we have wandered into sin? Would you call us back to submission to you? Would you bring about encouragement where we are too cowardly to stand upon your truth? 
Would you give perseverance to faithfully go against the streams of our culture as we seek to live out your will? Since we know we can do none of these, this thing, the, we can do none of this on our own. We need your strength, and we wholly, wholly need you, Holy Spirit. We need to be strong in you, so help us keep our eyes on Christ our Savior. May we decrease that he might increase. May our desires and our pursuits reflect your light and truth, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning we have three points that we will be looking at. And these are God's call to faithful wives. Number two is God's desire of beautiful ornaments. And then third, a God-given holy example. God's call to faithful wives, God's desire of beautiful ornaments, and a God-given holy example. So first, faithful wives. <clears throat> we see as we enter our text again this morning, as we have, have seen time and time again uh, throughout Peter's writing, there's that link and that connection back to what he had previously said, that likewise, the first word that hits us, that Peter reminds us again that he has been building upon this theme of godly subjects and godly rulers. And that as we're building upon, uh, this isn't a standalone type of idea, that it is a throwback to what we have already explored in other sermons uh, as we explore our text this morning. And so the marriage covenant, we see, is no exception, that it is still to do with godly subjects and godly rulers. And we see that as he opens up with the next few words, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I want to park for a moment and explore the idea of your own husband. Because I think it's important that we notice what it doesn't say. It does not say, Women, be subject to every man. It doesn't say, wives, be subject to everyone else's husband. Rather, what Peter is addressing here is that the wives, that he's commanding that each one be subject to her own husband. Within Christian culture, even devout and Bible-believing, God-honoring Christian cultures and churches, I think this can become very easily misunderstood. Just as a for instance, at City Chapel, we believe that elders are called by God to their office, that these are men who are given the charge to serve the church by leading her. We believe that deacons are called by God to their office, that likewise these are men given charge to lead the flock through their service to her. And our desire as elders uh, is to see that all men and women would meet the qualifications for deacons, though not are all going to be called to that responsibility or of the office. So they're not all going to have the official title. But it could be easy, I think, growing up in that culture and seeing these men that are the ones who hold leadership in the, in the 
local church and that as husbands within the church are leading their wives and family well and that when wives are submissive to their own husbands and not gossiping about or deriding each other's husbands and when Christian charity and respect is given and received. Now, of course, this is a wonderful thing and it is a, a picture of God's kingdom functioning well here on earth. That even if there are private issues that arise, it could be dealt with out of sight from the others, so, so some would never even know of these issues that arise and that, that sons and daughters would be unaware of certain issues. But the, the trick is, when issues do arise publicly, if we've made assumptions as to the roles of men and women, if we haven't actually explored what the Bible is calling us to, our assumptions begin to break down. Unless we know what the Bible has prescribed, it becomes all too easy to become victimized by incorrect understanding that we have imported upon God's Word. And in this, we would fall into one of two categories. We may rebel against God's Word because of our own mishandling or misunderstanding, or we may maintain our misunderstanding or false teachings to our own or others' harm. And so I want to be clear that this isn't the subjection of women. This isn't what, what the Bible is teaching. This isn't what we believe. And so don't import that idea from what you see onto the text, that that, that isn't what Peter's saying. Next week, of course, we will explore what it means for a man to take charge and to lead his own wife well. And, and so please uh, come back for that. Um, but yeah, I do want to make sure that we all know this is not suppression of women. It's an opportunity to obey God's word that we would allow her husband to lead her and the family well. This is exactly what Peter is addressing as he reiterates and reaffirms God's command within the marriage covenant. Peter is writing to wives who have converted to Christ. Now, in this time that we're reading, I'll remind you that this is part of the dispersion that most, if not all, of his audience at this point have converted either from paganism or Judaism. And that for these wives, as he's writing to them, their husbands may or may not have converted along with them. So their marriage may or may not be peachy any longer. Most Jewish husbands, if he is still a devout Jewish follower, would be very concerned for his wife. Because from his perspective, she has turned aside from God. He may be harsh with her, trying at all costs to show her the error of her ways. And this would stem probably out of fear for her soul, that her departure from centuries of religious practice and tradition that actually at one time was worship to God. Pagan husbands also may believe that his wife had been conned into a reinvented version of the Jewish God. And so he may speak down at her for how gullible she has been for believing such a thing. And then somewhere caught between these two 
are even those husbands who have converted, who are believers, who do know who Jesus is, and they believe in, in the way of Christ. But as they work with, in, in their context with those around them, they're caught in certain frustrations, in this gossip, in this whirlwind of emotions. They're, they're part of the dispersion. They are foreigners even in their own homes. And they may be, as they re-examine what was good and noble and pure from their Jewish roots and what they have to sever, they may be lost, wondering what they are actually supposed to do. And so Peter reminds them, as we so often need reminding ourselves, that these wives, whether they, mar- they are married to a man who is leading well or not, that she is called to extend loving, reverential respect to the headship of her husband. That is, as long as that doesn't contradict God's commandments. And then we see that he moves into good conduct. Now, I want to remind us, in this context, there could be whispers and murmurs that these wives are hearing, that they are trying to filter through as, as they're young or, or baby Christians, trying to understand what it is that they're supposed to do. And they may be even hearing things from their Christian sisters, uh, truths that can be misapplied. Things like, that as Christians, we are now new creatures in Christ. And we're free from our old obligations. Well, part of that is true. But he reminds us that we are not released from the marriage covenant that they entered, even if it was prior to their conversion. In fact, that now more than ever, they are called to be Christ-like. That they are called to reflect His light and His truth and His character. That the good conduct of these wives revealing Christ in them would testify to the truths that they proclaim. So that even as the most obstinate husband wouldn't be able to deny a real change in this woman that he calls his wife. That even a stubborn and harsh husband might begin to take seriously who Jesus is and that he really does cause true heart change. And what God has then called him to as a husband because of the loving, humble submission of his wife. So if you're a wife, or in a future time, you may be a wife whose husband is not walking in a manner that is biblical, This does, uh, does his neglect excuse your neglect for what God has called you to? What I'm asking is that will you obey God regardless of his disobedience? that you may honor God and perhaps be the instrument that God uses to cause heart change in your husband. Now, in saying that, there's a few things I want to make sure that we are clear on, so let's, let's take note, and then we'll look at some exceptions. So first, we'll note that God does not guarantee that your husband will be saved. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16, Paul in, in talking to, to wives in his audience, says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Another thing 
that we notice is that God does not put a timeline on this. This isn't obey for a while and then he will become saved. That your obedience must be lifelong, whether you see positive results or not. And then third, we should note that your conduct honors God and must be done for him alone. I also want to be very clear that in addressing these, Peter is speaking in general terms, that Peter is arguing for the defense of the marriage covenant, but they're all, there are exceptions, or, or exceptions if I can put them in quotes, uh, because the Bible clearly makes exceptions for things like adultery or, or abandonment of the covenant than in such examples like abuse towards the wife or towards the children. That this husband has already abandoned his covenant vows. And I want to be clear on this, not because I'm suspect of anyone in this room here this morning, but I want to be clear because we as Christians need to know what the Bible says on these issues. So that if ever we are in or see a case like this, that we know how to respond biblically. We'll touch more again next week on this, but, but as, as a little teaser, I want to say that where feminism continues to increase, and I mean this, this third wave feminism that we've seen uh, come through in our culture now, so does the abuse of women. As a, our culture continues to spiral down the Romans 1 slide, this will have increasing prevalence as a society of fools continues to celebrate and permit the very things that our Creator said would bring harm and destruction. We will see it, I'm sure. And so I want to be clear that Peter is not condemning wives and children and families to quietly take abuse. That the church should actually be the first on the front lines to defend women and children from abusive relationships. The church should work with local authorities so that an unrepentant man cannot just go down the street and continue in his abuse and leaving a wake of death and destruction. Peter is concerned with, wherever possible, restoring a good and a true and a pure biblical marriage. And by doing so, through adherence to the full counsel of biblical authority. And this, this is why the rule of headship is so important. This is why God has established these roles within His Word. This is why marriage and church government and civil government have been instructed and instituted by God through His Word. That we might hold each other accountable to the means that God has determined is right for His creation. He is God, after all, and He created us. He knows what we need uh, in order to survive and to thrive and to serve Him. What Peter is actually hinting to, I believe, is the Matthew 18 principle from Matthew 18, 15 to 20. That, and the reason I put the exceptions in air quotes at the beginning was because I don't think that they're actually true exceptions. That they are just the next steps. They're further on down in the Matthew 18 principle. 
that in every instance we are called to live honorably to God first, that we are called through that to call out sin as sin, and to call our brother to repentance. And this happens first in private, then in public, until he will repent and that sin would be purged and that God would be glorified. And so, I, I want to make sure that that is clear. And then after calling wives to walk in respectful and pure conduct, Peter immediately jumps into the outer adornments. As he explores other facets of the godly behavior and character of a Christian woman and what she should aspire to. So that leads us into point number two, beautiful adornments. We see this in verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. I wonder... I'm going to try not to look around the room and single out anyone specifically, but how many of the beautiful women that we have here this morning came in with uh, their hair all done up nice and they wore the brand new outfits that they got for Christmas and maybe new gold jewelry. And as we read the text this morning and we came to it, they just kind of slumped in their seats and it was like, oh, this verse. I forgot we were going to be looking at this verse. Why did my husband ever let me walk out of the house looking like this? I feel like everyone's looking at me now. Well, sister, please bring your husband back next week so that it can be his turn. But truthfully, I do believe our small congregation is quite blessed. We have a number of very lovely women, many of whom are married to, well, the men of City Chapel have married up, let me put it that way. And Peter is not forbidding decorating the outward appearance. Now, these examples that he gives, and we'll look, look at them, and I, I took this from Matthew Henry's commentary, that in antiquity, in the time that Peter is writing, the braiding of hair was commonly used by lewd, that means smutty or vulgar women. That this idea of gold jewelry, though it was, we see it practiced in the Bible by women like Rebecca and Esther, these godly women who had gold jewelry, but it became the practice of harlots and wicked people for the time that that Peter is writing. And clothes, obviously clothes are not forbidden, but should be modest in their appearance and cost. So this is what Peter is looking at. Peter's not giving us a list here of things to do and not to do, but rather he's giving us direction that we would consider how our outward appearance reflects the fact that we claim Christ and that it would not distract from our testimony. So if you wonder, well, exactly how much leverage Um, does the outward appearance have on our testimony? I would ask you to consider the unforeseen hurdle that 2016 presidential candidate Hillary Clinton had to overcome at a certain rally where she claimed to be the champion for the middle class and was called out for wearing a $12,000 Armani jacket. Or where is the motive of those who subscribe to the idea in our culture that 
if you've got it, flaunt it. Not only can our outward appearance affect those who look at us, but it can indeed affect the way in which we think about ourselves. Many people become puffed up because of the brand name labels that they wear, or they are trying to appear more affluent than they are by believing they have achieved some sort of status merely through the way in which they look. Looking good, feeling good. Should have been in Hollywood. We live in a nation that spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year on elective cosmetic surgeries. Now this information was actually hard to find and the last recorded numbers came from 2003. And I imagine they are even bigger and further along than that. But in 2003, in our nation, in Canada, uh, looking at four different types of cosmetic surgeries, liposuction, breast augmentation, injectables like Botox and collagen and non-surgical facelifts, there was a total of 2,000, uh, sorry, pardon me, 242,901 procedures at the price tag of $410.3 million. That is 666 procedures at $1.13 million each and every day in our nation in Canada. Now, of course, there could be instances with perfectly legitimate reasons why some people would opt for this type of procedure. But for the majority, it is, pursuit, it is in the pursuit of vanity. That we are a nation and a people obsessed with how we look. And Peter does not forbid the care of your outward appearance. But he does call you to ensure that you are adorning the hidden man of the heart, the hidden person of the heart, your inner beauty. This is the beauty that is incorruptible, one that beautifies the soul, that grows all the more beautiful through the years. This is the fruit of the Spirit and the virtues of Christian living that grace this wife in true beauty. This is the graces of God that shine all the more brightly as time passes, as she walks with her God, as these ornaments are increasingly on display. And what a contradiction. Is it not to the physical ornaments that fade with time and often so quickly become outdated? And then the finest ornament that he notes, which is precious in the sight of God, he says, is a gentle and quiet spirit. A woman who has a mind and opinion of her own, yet is not stubborn or quick to angry and prideful passions. She is obliging to the headship of her husband and gentle towards her family. This is quite the opposite from the feminist version of the modern woman that we see with her slogan, I am woman, hear me roar. But like a garden, she must be carefully she must carefully tend to this ornament, pruning, weeding, watering. The work doesn't end, but through the years as she blooms and blossoms into something far more beautiful than mere physical beauty only. A beauty that is incorruptible. And this is an offering of worship to her Savior. Peter then, as we go into verse 5, gives us a holy example. This is our third point. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. There is this idea, of course, that we live in a time of such social advancement. We like to believe that we are more superior than any other previous eras. We like to believe that we have so much more figured out than what they used to. And we like to look down our nose at the old-fashioned ways that were. And we think, wow, this is 2020. We don't think like that anymore. We don't do things like that anymore. But even this line of thinking is not new. In fact, way back in the barbaric days of 1955, as some of you may remember, C.S. Lewis coined the term chronological snobbery. And this, this idea that Lewis came up with was to combat the idea that the thinking, art, or science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present simply by virtue of its temporal priority, or the belief that since civilization has advanced in certain areas, people of earlier periods were less intelligent. Sixty-five years later, we still believe the same thing, but we would never arrange our thoughts in such an elegant and even poetic phrase. So we just go around calling it being woke. Lewis correctly identified that as humans, at our core, the essence of our being, we are absolutely not any more advanced than any other time in human history. In fact, on the contrary, we sit on top of the achievements of a lifetime that were built upon the achievements of a lifetime, that were built upon the achievements of a lifetime, and so on. We enjoy more technology, have access to more education, and have more and more godly examples to follow than at any other time in history. And it is true that we are very privileged, but to believe that we in and of ourselves are more advanced than any humans in history is pure snobbery. There is nothing new under the sun, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. What has been done is what will be and what has, sorry, let me rephrase what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Peter calls us to consider Old Testament matriarchs, these examples of godly women that we can look to and learn from. Consider Sarah, he says. Now, did, did she have the writings of Scripture to guide her? No. Did she have a recorded history of God-fearing women to consider? No. Yet, she trusted in God and did not neglect her earthly duties. That she is one attributed to having a quiet spirit and being subject to her husband. That when God called Abraham out of Ur, out of the land of the Chaldeans, even though they did not know where they were going, this, this couple who was old, and childless, but obedient. Now, did they walk in humble, quiet, obedient faith all the time? Nope. 
Sarah laughed at God's promise that she would have a baby. Abraham took her servant at, at her own suggestion and had a baby with her. And that didn't work out well for anyone. Fearful, Abraham pawned his wife off as his sister so that she would be taken to be the wife of the king twice. But when we get to the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 and we work our way down to verse 11, this is what we read. That by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah? Yeah, Sarah. This very Sarah. There's no mention of all of her mistakes, no mention of the sin that she undoubtedly had, only of the faith that she had in God and the grace that he covered her with. Her faith was small at times, perhaps almost invisible, but even a little bit of true faith was enough. Enough that God's work was made evident in her in Hebrews 11. Enough that God's grace covers her sin and it isn't mentioned again. And isn't this good news for us this morning? Isn't it good to know that God uses crooked sticks like Sarah to draw straight lines and work out his purposes? Isn't it good to know that you and I are not without hope? That none of us are so bad that God couldn't cleanse us and use us for his purpose? And Sarah some of you know the story, maybe some of you don't. Sarah was not her original name. It was Sarai. It was very similar. Sarai means woman of high rank. But God changed her name. He changed it to Sarah, which means princess, or better yet, my princess. It has a loftier and more exalted meaning. It was a name becoming for the woman whom God had chosen to be the matriarch of his chosen people. And our text closes with such an encouragement that you are her daughters, the daughters of God's princess, when you hold fast to his promises, when you do not quit the truth you profess or neglect your wifely duty, not under coercion or fear, but out of loving obedience and worship to God. In your own study, as you read your Bible, I encourage you to see the examples of faith of godly women, even in their limited understanding, and how they obeyed not only their husband if they had one, but how they obeyed by extension God and His promises. How throughout the Old Testament, we see great matriarchs of faith walking in difficult times. But then too, don't just note their obedience, but also notice the times that they acted in accordance with their own wisdom and the outcome of this and how God in his wisdom worked it all together for his redemptive purposes. At times in the joy of those who walked in obedience and other times in the correction of those in disobedience. As we see even a fiery personality like Sarah, one who is called princess by God himself, being credited for her submission to her husband and her obedience to God. And we are her children, that is Abraham's children, children of the promise, covenant children 
of God's redemption. How? Because of our triune God. Because of Christ's submission in eternity past, that even before the earth was ever formed, that God put into place a redemption plan. Because he knew that man would sin against him. And he knew that we would need more than just a creator. We would need a savior. One who could atone for the sins of many. One who could satisfy the righteous wrath of God. One who could fulfill the law where Adam and every one of his children after failed. Keeping it in perfect righteousness. And so Christ would humble himself and he would be the mediator between God and man. He would subject himself to the will of his Father. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in every, on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sarah is an example. Sarah is a good example. But Jesus Christ is our metric. Sarah reveals what happens when we falter, that God is merciful and gracious, and Christ is the one who extends His mercy and grace to us. And He calls us to live not like Sarah, but like Him. That's why, uh, what's more, is that proceeding from Christ is this third member of the, the Holy Trinity, our helper, the Holy Spirit. It is Him who guides us and produces fruit in our lives. He convicts us when we sin that we might turn back in repentance. Our very obedience to God is a gift from Him, the fruit and evidence of His presence in our lives. He is the one who indwells us. He submits to Christ as Christ submits to the Father, and he calls us to be subjects to a good master, a holy and loving God. So, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, not out of dread of him or amazement of him, but rather from a pure desire to do well and to please and worship God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made redemption possible. That you have extended it to us, though we are sinners. Though we falter every day. Jesus, we thank you for showing us what true and perfect submission looks like. We confess that we do not live as you have called us to live. I confess that I, like Sarah, turn aside to my own way. But yet, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us through the work of Christ. That you are faithful and just to forgive sin.
that when you look upon us, Heavenly Father, though we are broken sinners, in Christ you see sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah, of your covenant of redemption, that we are covenant children, that we are your children. And so we pray that you would help us to live lives that honor you, that as we go from this place this morning, that we would go equipped and emblazoned to proclaim your truths to a lost and hurting world, that we would show by both our the words we confess with our tongue that would be backed up by the conduct, the holy conduct of our lives. So we pray that you would go with us, Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.